Thank you for joining us for the Ravenswood Baptist Church podcast with Pastor Dustin Moore. We are a Bible-believing, grace-driven church located on the north side of Chicago. As a church, we are passionate about making disciples of all people for the glory of God. If you would like more information about our ministry, visit ravenswoodbaptist.org. Now, here's Pastor Dustin. Well, today we try to wrap a nice bow on what can often be a favorite story, a favorite story inside of God's grand story. We're often endeared to the story of Esther because there is something about, there's something about an innocent, young, innocent Jewish girl who ends up being the queen of a pagan king and kingdom that is somewhat endearing to us. This young girl had lost her parents when she was younger, and therefore she was adopted by her older cousin Mordecai. This young queen goes into the palace, the Persian kingdom, and on the advice of counsel, her adopted father conceals her Jewish identity. We're not sure why she does, but she does. A few years after, she goes into the palace, she becomes queen. A few years later, her cousin Mordecai informs her of an attempt by a wicked man. A wicked man named Haman who wanted to kill all the Jews. Now all of this was due to the fact that Mordecai would not bow to Haman. Mordecai was a Jew. The author of Esther never tells us why Mordecai didn't bow. Did he not bow because he would only bow to Yahweh? We don't know. Was he not wanting to bow to Haman because of pride? We don't know. What we do get, though, in clear terms, is what's going to happen to the Jewish people because of the anger and the hatred of Haman. Esther chapter 3 told us, these words, and the letters were sent by post into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to cause to perish all Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day, even upon the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month Adar, and to take the spoil of them for a prey. We learned in chapter 3 that the situation was dire. It's serious. There's a decree to kill all the Jews, old, young, women, men, children, doesn't matter, all of them. And so Mordecai, as well as all the Jews, is terrified, as you would be. He's grieving. But maybe in that day, the only Jew who doesn't know about Haman's decree is the queen. She's cocooned in her beautiful palace, enjoying the pleasures of being the queen, while withholding her identity as a daughter of Yahweh. All that is until Mordecai, through a series of events, notifies Esther of Haman's decree. Mordecai pleads with Esther to intercede, and when she is clearly nervous to do so, he says something to her. I don't want you to miss, it's central to the message of Esther. He says something to her, to her, that might be the most underrated statement in all of the book. Chapter 4 and verse 14, we found these words. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, Mordecai saying to Esther, then shall their enlargement 
and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed, and who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Now you might think that I'm talking about the underrated statement is at the end of that chapter, end of that verse, where we know these famous words. If you've heard from Esther, you've heard these words, and who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this. But that is not the underrated portion I'm talking about. I'm talking about the earlier words. The words that said this, for if thou altogether, Esther, if thou holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. You see, what Mordecai knew in his head that had not yet seemed to affect his heart and therefore his life was that God is the author and the finisher of this story. He tells her, if you don't speak up, Esther, someone else will step in. What is he saying? God's writing a story. And God, because he is God, is the only hero of this story. And in God's story, we, you and I, like Esther and Mordecai, are brought into it. And we have the blessing of participating in the story. But it is God who is working behind the scenes even when... It appears, as our sermon series title says, God is missing. It is God who is working behind the scenes. It is God who, by His providence, works all things according to His will. It is God who operates not at the expense, hear me, this is so important, theologically to the book of Esther. It is God who works and operates not at the expense of man's free will, and not even in response to man's free will, but God operating outside of time operates knowing what man freely will do. And so, the story of Esther. To use the words of Norman Geisler, God knew exactly what they would freely do. And God is unmoved and unfazed by man's free choices. You see, God is working, and His purposes are not thwarted by ours. Let me say that again. God is working, and His purposes are not thwarted by our purposes. Mordecai seems to be indicating this to Esther in chapter 4. That God is going to provide a deliverance. Esther, if it's not you, it'll come from somewhere else. Now that has to give, I don't know where you are today in life, I don't know every circumstance that's ahead of you or that you're currently a part of, but every Christian like you and me can find hope in a God who is working. Even in the brokenness and the significant evil that we see all around us, we can take hope that God's work is not going to be stopped. And he shows us in Esther that God is always, here's, here's some really good news, that God is always bringing people to the kingdom for such a time as this. Yes, we can recognize that God is the hero, but God by his providence brought an Esther and he brought a Mordecai to be a part of God's purposes being accomplished. God brought Joseph into an Egyptian prison to end up in Egyptian leadership. He brought Moses into Pharaoh's house to then be the human deliverer to the Jews. He brought David 
to see his brothers in battle so that David could defeat a Goliath. He brought Nehemiah to the Persian king's cup to be the Persian king's cupbearer so that Nehemiah could be in a position to help rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and bring spiritual renewal in Israel. You see, this is how God operates inside his story. He brings people into the kingdom for such a time as this, but God is the hero. And the truth about God's story is this. He's writing it better and different than any of us ever would or could. God is writing his story better than you and I ever could and absolutely in a different way than you and I ever would. And the good thing about that is he's God and we're not. But we have the opportunity to participate in that story. God gets all glory from his story because even the movers and shakers of the story are only there because of God's appointment. Even those who work through the story like in Esther and Mordecai are only there because God put them there. So God gets all glory. Nevertheless, we have seen, and as we have seen, the story from chapter 6. From chapter 6 and on, it's a story of full reversals. And a story of reversals. On this great cosmic battlefield, the plan and the scheme of Satan will never be able to stop the power and purpose of God. Reversal after reversal were before our eyes. And this is helpful for us in our day. Because our God is a God of great reversals. And the God of great reversals strengthens our hope. He gives us confidence that we can go to bed each night and remember the words of another Jewish young lady named Corey Ten Boom who said this, Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. Because it might seem like God is missing, but God is working. The story of Esther should not just excite us with an incredible defeat of Haman, a powerful and evil man. People that want to destroy the Jews. But the book of Esther should fortify our trust in a powerful and good God who is writing a great story. Now the closing words of this book, the Jews are going to receive from Esther and Mordecai, they're going to receive something. They're going to receive a new rhythm, if I can say it like that, a new part of Jewish life. And the reason for that is they've been delivered. And deliverance demands celebration. Deliverance demands celebration. So today, I wanna, we're going to conclude chapters 9 and 10 in our story and our study of the book of Esther. And I want to work through this with you and tell you what's going on here in the story. And then I'll give some final application. Number one, number one, what we see here at the end of chapter 9 is we see a rehearsing of the reversal. A rehearsing the reversal. After all the events that we saw last week... People killed, 75,000 75, people killed, 800 people killed in Shushan by the Jews, and a holy war taking place. The events that follow are presented us in chapter 9 and verse 20. Would you look there with me? And Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters unto all the Jews that were in all the provinces of the king Ahasuerus, both nigh and far, to establish this among them, that they should keep the 14th day of the month Adar, and the 15th day of the same yearly. 
As the days wherein the Jews rested from their enemies, and the month which was turned unto them from sorrow to joy, and from mourning into a good day, that they should make them days of feasting and joy, and of sending portions one to another, and gifts to the poor. That's very important that such an incredible reversal and deliverance be written down. Very important. So Mordecai, if you will, the story tells us here, the passage tells us that Mordecai writes the story. And he wants to send it to all the Jews in the provinces of the king. He wants them to never forget the deliverance and the reversal that God provided on Adar 13 and 14. In fact, what he does here is he establishes a holiday. This holiday was explained as the days when the Jews rested from their enemy. It was a day when it was a really bad day that became a really good day. So to commemorate this event, the Jews were to feast, to be joyful, to send portions of food to one another, and to give gifts to the poor. And all of this sounds wonderful, right? But you gotta, you got to think through this with me this morning. You need to notice that something is missing. Notice in verses 9 through 22 that nothing about this moment is vertical. You say, what do you mean? Nothing is pointed to God. Literally, this was the holiday. Get a lot of food. Put on your t-shirt that says Esther is the reason for the season. Put some, get some food and give it to your friends. And celebrate that what was a bad day is now a good day. All good, right? This is the holiday. In some ways it resembles what you and I would observe as Thanksgiving. Which even oddly in our culture lacks a vertical dimension. To whom are we thankful the universe? To whom are we thankful? To whom are they thankful? The letter states that a great reversal had taken place. Look at verse 23. And the Jews undertook to do as they had begun, and as Mordecai had written unto them, because Haman the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had devised against the Jews to destroy them, and had cast pur, that is the lot, to consume them and to destroy them. But when Esther came before the king, notice those words, but when Esther came before the king, he commanded by letters that his wicked device, which he had devised against the Jews, should return upon his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Now this was important. It was important for the Jews to be aware of, but you and I must note once again, there is no vertical reference here to God or His work in this story. In fact, the line there in verse 25 said that when Esther came before the king, all of this turned around. Esther's the one that did it. Esther's the one who saved the day. Esther's the one who preserved the Jewish people, right? It's all Esther. So an entire holiday is established on this basis. Now you might think this morning I'm being unfair. And I'll take that criticism gladly. Because I'm looking for the vertical dimension. I'm looking for where God's people recognize God's work. But God not only is missing from the story, God is missing from their response to the story. So... We're just going to rehearse the reversal. 
Number two, they're going to be commanded to remember the reversal, remembering the reversal. Look at verse 26. Wherefore they called these days Purim, after the name of Pur. Therefore all, for all the words of this letter and of that which they had seen concerning this matter, and which had come unto them, the Jews ordained and took upon them, so as it should not fail that they would keep these two days according to their writing and according to their appointed time every year, and that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city, and that these days of Purim should not fail from among the Jews, nor the memorial of them perish from their seed. Now, we can see the name Purim. You might have heard this word before. It's a plural form of the word pur, which is the lot that was cast to decide the days where the Jews would be killed. And so you should, by the way, in case you're interested, by the Jewish people, Purim was already observed this year on February 25th and 26th. You should note, though, if we're being fair critiques of the story, You should note that Purim was ordained by the Jews, but not by God. Ordained by the Jews and not by God. Now this doesn't make it wrong. This doesn't make it wrong. In fact, the the actions they were to take over these two days of Purim were good and noble. But the Jews already had seven feasts. They already had seven feasts. Listen very carefully that were commanded by God. They were commanded by God through Moses in the Torah. But Purim is unlike any of those feasts because Purim was not ordained by God, but by Mordecai and Esther. Mordecai, though, was not a prophet or a miracle worker. He wasn't a king or a high priest either. So let me press into this a little more. Let me critique this even more for us. What's interesting to note is that in the days of Esther, the Jews were not even celebrating all the feasts commanded by God in the Torah. See, in the days of Esther, you go to the book of Nehemiah and you find that the Jews hadn't celebrated the commanded feast of booths. That they had not not celebrated the Feast of Booths since the days Joshua brought them into the the Promised Land. I know that for some of you, this means nothing, but Feast of Booths was commanded by God. And they were not even celebrating that, but they add Purim to the schedule when God never commanded it to be celebrated. You say, why does that even matter? Because in the New Testament, you find Jesus condemning them. The Pharisees, the religious elites, condemning them for celebrating tradition over commandments. Tradition over commandments. And any of you that have been a part of church and Christianity amount of time, you have also witnessed tradition over commandments. So we got to ask honestly, did God command them to celebrate Purim? Do we put our own religious traditions over God's commandments? Either way. I told you, it's not wrong. Not wrong. Add all the holidays you want, but don't neglect what God has commanded. Naming these days Purim spoke to the fact that although Haman and his people had cast the pur, cast the lots, they could not change the destiny of God's people. But I want you to notice what happens next. 
Not only does Mordecai send this, but Esther's going to certify. Look at verse 29. Then Esther the queen, the daughter of Abiel, and Mordecai the Jew wrote with all authority, because they had all authority, to confirm this second letter of Purim. And he sent the letters unto all the Jews to the 120 and seven provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus with words of peace and truth to confirm these days of Purim in their times appointed. Appointed by whom? Esther and Mordecai. According as Mordecai the Jew and Esther the queen had enjoined them, and as they had decreed for themselves and for their seed the matters of the fastings and their cry. And the decree of Esther confirmed these matters of Purim, and it was written in the book. Written in the book. Not the Bible. <laughs> the book. The book that was to be read by all the people. This was a serious holiday. And by Esther and Mordecai's command, nobody was to neglect it. As I've said, ironically, they're neglecting the feast that God had already commanded. So here we have this story progressing, right? And, and really, they're being introduced to a holiday that they're commanded to observe because of deliverance of Esther and Mordecai. I want you to see number three, the conclusion to the book. Reconsidering the reversal. Reconsidering, you and I, reconsidering the reversal. I want you to notice how the book ends. And the king Ahasuerus laid a tribute unto the land and upon the isles of the sea and all the acts of his power and of his might and the declaration of the greatness of Mordecai whereunto the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was next unto king Ahasuerus and great among the Jews and accepted of the multitude of his brethren seeking the wealth of his people and speaking peace to all his seed. Story ends. That's it. That, that's the story. <laughs> it ends basically telling us that the king, after all that had happened, the king basically puts another tax, a tribute on them. We're back to business as normal. We're back to business with whatever the king wants. But by the way, in case, it, in case it's encouragement to you, Mordecai is, is, is second in command and he's looking out for his people. But business in the Persian kingdom is business as normal. It tells us this, that after we've seen a story of valleys and mountaintops, life just begins as normal. Nothing fundamentally has changed in the kingdom. Nothing. Nothing is better. You see, in chapter 1, we saw the king's riches. In chapter 10, we see him, we see him taxing his people again. In, 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 in chapters 2 and 3, we see Haman, right? This man who's caring about his wealth and his greatness and his people. And in chapter 10, we just find Mordecai caring about his wealth and his people. The story is, is, is the same. It doesn't change anything. Now, if you're like me, grew up in Sunday school, you don't, nobody ever told you that Esther and Mordecai don't change the kingdom. It's not any different. It's not any different. The king still did what the king wanted to do. And we've got a kingdom that continues to function as it's always functioned. You say, Pastor, why, why even make that point? Because when we think biblically, when we think biblically, we understand already, we should understand already, that the story that we currently are part of in God's story, that 
it has a start and it will inevitably have an ending. But hear me. The king starts his story the way he wants to start it. The king continues his story the way he wants to continue it. And no story, no story ends any differently than this story does unless Jesus has redeemed it. Important to make with this study. The story isn't different because this story, like our story, needs the redemption of Christ. And hear me. Nothing in the world fundamentally changes apart from Jesus. That's what you need to know. Nothing changes apart from Jesus. The world continues to look like it's looked. In fact, if you take the book of Esther and you translate the evil and the sin and the wickedness of Esther, I'm going to tell you something. You don't have to look far to find it in 2021 as well. Why? Because sin does not allow the world to fundamentally change. Only Jesus allows it to change. You okay? I don't mean to be doom and gloom today. but That's the reality of the Christian worldview. All that being said, let me give you four quick application statements to the story. And I'm going to move quickly on this. Number one, as we conclude the book of Esther, wrap it up, we need to remember these four things. Number one, the book of Esther reminds us that the evil empire still exists. The book of Esther reminds us that the evil empire still exists. The Persian empire has come and gone. But the empire that propped it up, the kingdom of Satan, still exists in different forms. You and I are still involved today in a life and death struggle with the forces of evil. The book of Esther shows this. Nothing has changed in that sense since that time. You need to note that. You see evil here, you see evil out there. The day is coming, though, when our king will come to reclaim his throne, and the days of this kingdom will be over. In fact, Revelation 11 tells us that after the final judgment and after the establishment of the millennial kingdom, that all the kingdoms of the world will come to the kingdoms to be the kingdoms of our Lord. Revelation 11.15 says, And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. But until that day, until that day, until the great judgment, you can expect the evil empire to exist. You say, why even make that a point? Because so many people are trying to create utopia. It's not happening, friends. It's not happening. It won't happen. Why? Because the kingdom of Satan is still propping itself up through various forms. That's not negative. That's reality from the Christian worldview. But in the waiting time, we know that Christ's kingdom will be victorious. And so you and I are to continue to wage against evil knowing it will fully be defeated one day. But it's going to be all around us until that moment. And so we are in this life and death struggle with the forces of evil. Number two, the book of Esther helps us examine our feasting and our fasting. Or our fasting and our feasting. 
however order I put that. The book of Esther helps us to examine our fasting and our feasting. Now, I'm not going to go to the passages that I take this from. I'm just going to reference them. Hear me very carefully. Stay with me, please. This is so important. In Esther chapter 4, in Esther chapter 4, Esther told Mordecai to tell all the Jews to fast because she was going to go to the king. Their, the decree of Haman propelled them to be a people who fasted. But then in chapter 8, the decree of Mordecai and Esther and the life-saving decree that was given to the Jews called them to feasting. So why do, what do those signify? They, they're very important because the feasting and the fasting, or the fasting and the feasting, cause us to diagnose our affections. Now here's what I mean by that. Listen very carefully and don't miss this. What is it in this world that causes you to grieve and at the same time would cause you to rejoice? You can often, when you're honest with your own affections and your own heart in that moment, you can diagnose what is often your own idolatry. The gift of, of fasting and grieving causes me to ask this question. Am I grieving over something that I have asked to be my functioning Savior? And I'm, am I rejoicing in something that I am asking to be my functioning Savior? If so, it's an idol. And seasons of fasting and grieving will allow you to ask, have I placed this in an improper place in my worship of Jesus? Are you listening and understanding what I'm saying? And at the same time, seasons of great rejoicing can cause us to ask the question, am I rejoicing over something that is more important to me than Jesus? Than Jesus. St. Augustine said that this was the process of reordering what we love. That I might love something more than Jesus. And if I do, that thing might be an idol. Esther calls us to look and go, in the grand scheme of my life, am I, am I making idols in my fasting and my feasting? My grieving and my rejoicing? It's a fair question to ask ourselves. Number three, the book of Esther calls us to question, who is our functional hero? If I asked you, after reading through 10 chapters of Esther, who's the main character of the book? Well, the Jews believed it was Esther. If you went to the story told in the Greek language and for the Greek people, the Greek people, they retold the story to make Mordecai the hero. They wanted Mordecai to be the hero. The Jews made Esther, the queen, the hero. You and I as Christians, we know this. Neither Esther or Mordecai are the hero. God is the hero of the story. But that calls us to ask this question. Again, this is what we do when we do spiritual diagnosis of our affections. Who am I asking to be the functioning hero of my life? Who? What? If you won't ask that question, you can't diagnose your spiritual condition. Who is the hero? In chapter 9, as the story is retold by Mordecai and, es and, and Esther, what do they say? But when Esther came before the king, when Esther went to the king, when Esther did this, when Esther did that. Nothing wrong with appreciating Esther. 
But Esther's not the hero. I want to ask you, in your life, who or what functions as your hero? Is it your spouse? Is it your child? Is it your job? Is it a right outcome? If I have this, if I have this, if this happens, if this takes place, this person, if they're in, in, in affirmation, in favor of me, that is my functioning hero. The story of Scripture says we are to have one hero, and that's Jesus. It's Jesus. When I ask you or somebody else in my life to function as my hero, I have just set my relationship with you up for devastation. Truth is, Esther and Mordecai both died. They're gone. And the story doesn't change until Jesus comes. Which leads us to last application point to the book. Number four, the book of Esther, like all of Scripture, reminds us of our need for God's ultimate deliverance in our life. Now you might read that and go, yeah, of course. But let me remind you of something and I've got to conclude. Remember as we were reading through that, I asked you to find, I asked you to find the vertical dimension of the passage. And you know what you didn't find? The vertical dimension of the passage. You know who their focus was on? Esther and Mordecai. Deliverance. On this side of the cross of Jesus Christ, on this side, on this side of the river, the redemptive story, the river that runs through the redemptive story, and that river being the finished work of Jesus, on this side of it, you and I know this. Ultimate deliverance is given to us through Jesus. Ultimate. And so the book of Esther, as we finish it, as you finish it and you go, that's it? That's it? The kingdom just goes about, does what it does? Yeah, that's it. Until Christ, the great deliverer, comes. And he frees his people once for all. The problem is his people are too busy recognizing Purim to recognize him a true Savior. And so, the book of Esther forces us to take our eyes off the horizontal and to fix them vertically. And apart from God's deliverance through Jesus... Apart from God's deliverance through Jesus, Christians know that there's no way for the world to be fundamentally different apart from Christ. There is no way. Jesus, Jesus is the ultimate deliverance. He's it. And so, we finish the book, and honestly, as I work through this and study this, I found myself going, well, this was great. It started great. The middle of it was awesome. The end of it, kind of blah. Yes, because it calls our hearts to ache for a greater deliverer. And that is the story of Scripture. The exact same way. For you and I, we look around and we go, boy, what's different about this world? Technology, a couple thousand years of development, but sin still exists. And in many cases, it seems to be stronger for the Christian. For the Christian, we look and we say our ultimate deliverer is Jesus. Jesus. Not the Esthers and Mordecais of our world. Jesus. And he's coming again. 
He's coming again. And so we fix our eyes vertically on Christ who has died, buried, risen again, and is seated at the right hand of the Father and will soon return to bring full and final victory. Full and final. The great deliverer. Full and final victory. And until that day, we allow that truth to propel us forward. To share the gospel with our neighbor and the nations. Our neighbor and the nations. Because Christ is the great deliverer. He's the great deliverer. You want to be a Purim people? You want to be a people who celebrate deliverance? Tell somebody about it. Tell somebody about it. Make it the centerpiece of your life. To the glory and the praise of Jesus. This, my friends, is the book of Esther. Hope you've enjoyed the journey with me over the last few months. We'll continue and we'll start another journey soon. Next chapter, next book, next study. All pointing us to Christ. The full and final delivery. Thanks for listening today. If you're listening for the first time, we would love to hear from you. Maybe you have a question about the gospel of Jesus. If so, we'd like you to send us an email at hello at ravenswoodbaptist.org. If you're a regular listener to our podcast and you would like to donate to the media ministry and outreach ministry of Ravenswood, your gift would allow us to do more in an effective way to get the gospel out. Thank you for partnering with us in ministry in Chicago and around the world.